0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the fantasy of translation. We'll think about translation as a mode, method and a problem. Is all translation an exercise in imagination and interpretation? What exactly happens during the process? Can only a reader be a translator? Can mathematics be translated into prose? Can Iqbal be read in Spanish? Must translated rhyming poetry rhyme why is translation of vernacular fiction especially problematic? Can translations often be invalid, ambiguous, and unilateral? What is untranslatable? What is the future of translatability and translation? And will only copies survive in the long run? We are pleased and privileged to have 3 syntakas saint-talkers with us here today. Professor Mustansir Dalvi is a professor of architecture. He is also a poet in English and a translator from Marathi and Urdu. Professor Sundar Sarukai he teaches philosophy at NIAS in Bangalore. And Professor S. Shankar he is a novelist, and a translator from Tamil, and a literary critic. His novel, Ghost in the Tamarind, has just been published. So Shankar, why don't we set the ball rolling with you, uh, maybe in a somewhat specific place, uh, the place of vernacular fiction set in a community or a place where people don't speak in the language in which it is translated to. So if we take that specific problem up, what's problematic there from your standpoint? Uh, you obviously wear a couple of hats here. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's conceptually problematic? And then we'll see. We'll open okay. a few flanks as we
1: go. Right. Um, I'm not sure I would say problematic in mm-hmm. the sense of a, of a problem that needs to be solved. Mm-hmm. Let's say interesting instead of problematic. Sure. Um, you know, so what I would say is that um, if you take vernacular to mean a kind of a location in a very specific you know, place as you were saying, then the question of translation um, comes up in a very you know interesting way, not a problematic way, but in an interesting way. How do you maintain that specificity and yet make it available for communities outside of that vernacular community, what we are calling a vernacular community? And here I would say, and maybe this is uh, the first idea that I want to put out there, and then we'll maybe have an opportunity to come back to it in later portions of the discussion. Is that I think this interesting issue can be approached either in a philosophical way, vein, which we should, and mm-hmm. we will, but also from the point of view of just storytelling. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and, I, and I think I would like to sort of have us, you know, think about how the telling of stories, which involve a specific, let's call it a vernacular community, which is the sort of issues that I sort of wrestle with as a novelist, you mm-hmm. know, I, I write novels, you know, Ghost in the Tamarind is very much set in in a particular context in Tamil Nadu in a particular historical time, mm-hmm. but I'm writing in English. So how do I convey the lives of people who are living their lives in Tamil, uh, but I'm conveying that in English? So the issue really becomes, for that's an issue of translation. So, and what I'm sort of proposing so is... So from
0: the word get-go almost, so if you write a novel in English, it's not translation in the strict literary translation sense, but you're already translating in your first version.
1: Absolutely. I mean, And mm. in, in ways which are extraordinarily similar to the act of translation, which is the act of translating from Urdu into English, in the sense that I might have a scene in the novel on page 25 in which a dialogue is taking place between three characters. Now they are speaking in Tamil because that's the because they don't know English, and it's a Tamil-speaking community. But as a novelist, I am, in one sense, in a very literal sense, engaging in an act of translation, right? right. I'm actually translating, you know, and I have to make it work within the story world, right. or the diegetic space of the, of the novel. And then there are other levels of translation in the novel, too, which would be how am I translating that Tamil world into English? So I'm just not at the level of dialogue, spoken speech, but also in other more conceptual ways. So what's
0: interesting here?
1: The interesting here for me is because and these are the two different sides of my identity, both as a storyteller and as a student of storytelling, which Mm -hmm. is the way I think of myself. So as a student of storytelling, I'm interested in the theoretical questions of translation, you know, some of which we will get to. But as a storyteller, I think the same questions of translation, you know, come up and are answered in a different way because they're able to create a story around it. So what I would also like us to maybe think about is the way in which a particular kind of exploration of the problem of translation, if you like, can be done in a kind of an abstract philosophical way. And and we should do it. I think there's much which we can gain by doing that, but also in a way which involves the creation of story worlds and storytelling and narratives. And um, you know, and I can you know, an illustration of this Yeah, would that be, would help. Yeah, the illustration. Okay. The illustration of this I would give you from, you know, um, you know, a scene in in, you know, my second novel, mm-hmm. um, in which there is uh, and I've written about this sort of critically as well, which is why it comes to my mind so freshly, in which, you know, I translated that great eighteenth century Krishna devotional Alaypayude, you know, a classic of Tamil devotional, you know, uh, poetry and music. So I actually translated that into English. But when it appears in the novel, I, you know, place it in a scene where characters are reacting to it. And one character is singing it, another character is hearing it, and it's their emotions and their psychologies are surrounding that. And that presentation of Alai Payude can do something which is different than just the translation of Alipaiden from Tamil into English because I'm able to also translate, if you like, the music and the response to the music. So the basic idea here is to propose us that, that storytelling is a form of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And and it's a form of knowledge which is...
0: So for example, in the instance, the illustration you just took, uh, Shankar, what exactly did it do? Did it leave it a little multilingual? There are some Tamil lines and phrases there or... This is a broader point of view doing uh, some kind of social translation, some kind of. What exactly is the point? Um, I'm not so sure I'm able the, to if put you put a finger on
1: it. So, that translation that I did of Payudeh, um which I believe is the first translation from Tamil into English, um, has appeared in three different ways. So, it's appeared in a textbook in the US, it's appeared in a critical essay that I wrote about it, and it's appeared in the novel. So the first place it appeared was in the novel. So in the novel it doesn't appear as a continuous text. You know there is like one stanza and then there is like a description of characters. It's part of the dramatic structure of that particular scene. Mm-hmm. Right? So in the textbook it just appears as a as a as a single text and mm-hmm. it appears almost like a poem, right? Sure. sure. So in the critical essay also appears as a sing- single text but then it's surrounded by all this commentary, you know. Sure. So what I'm proposing with we think about is how each one of these is an act of translation, but each one of these is a different act of translation. Right, And and so... But some of them are reinterpretations, some of them are... Uh, I would say all of them are interpretations. You know, like Ghost in the Tamarind also has a scene of translation where there's this British officer in, in colonial times, you know, in a little village in Tamil Nadu, and he's trying to speak in Tamil, and his... You know, and his, you know, the people he's trying to, and his Tamil isn't very good, and the people he's talking to are kind of responding to him in different ways. So that scene of translation is presented to the reader as an object of knowledge in a particular way because it's dramatized. And
0: is the reader always present as you translate um maybe not so much in the critical essays but in in
1: the definitely in the storytelling i think definitely so even in the critical essays and maybe i'll just go back to the one question if you don't mind if you know about about this reinterpretation and uh, and maybe i can just respond to that very quickly i wouldn't i wouldn't say reinterpretation i would say you know all translation is interpretation yeah, And here again, maybe I can use this illustration, which I often you know, use with my students when I teach translation, which is to say that I think we... we... We'll get back to that, Shankar, if you don't mind.
0: Is, is, is all translation reinterpretation? Is all translation rewriting almost? What, what, what does the philosopher in you say? No, I, would, I would uh, definitely agree. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to look at
2: translation. Mm. And I think the important point from what Shankar is saying is that, you know, the way I would like to expand on it is to say, um, the translation is beyond the linguistic domain.
1: Mm-hmm. And the
2: fact of translating alaipayude for example, in different forms, mm-hmm. is also not just to translate the words which correspond to Tamil to English. It's not just word by word. Not it's even just, not the question of word by word. It's not even language to language. It's not it's only linguistic. It's about context to context. It's about changing context. It's about a word, Right. And, and that's why there is a very interesting question. I mean, if I can just put it in, if yes. at all, we want to connect yes. it to what you're saying. Uh, because there's a very important idea about translation in what what he said, which is, and I want to explore that further a little bit if you have time. Uh, you know, when you wrote about the Tamil characters in your novel, and you seem to suggest that you are translating the... Tamil characters because they are speaking in Tamil in your setting in the novel setting yes but you have to write in English yes so you seem to suggest that he was almost translating those it's as if those two characters are speaking in Tamil and you as a novelist is listening to them from outside and then transcribing or rewriting it or translating it in English does that really happen as a novelist as a writer Or, I mean, so we can make sense of it by saying subconsciously maybe that's happening and you're writing, etc. But I want to really understand the point of translation as something so fundamental that suppose there is a picture that your characters are not speaking in Tamil teacher. It's not that you as a novelist is hearing them speaking in Tamil and then translating because he's writing it in English. Is there some other process in in, which you understand?
0: In a way, Sundar, your question is that the fact that Shankar ends up writing it for the first time in English, yeah. uh, does that in any way even end up influencing the content of what is... Can I... Yeah. Is, is that yeah, the point? No, I'm, I'm actually asking a question about translation.
2: Suppose I suggest... Why is it not dubbing? Yeah. So, no, what I'm suggesting is that why is it not that Shankar is writing it in English alone? Right. It's really not about those two people talking in Tamil. Right. And the re- I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, but I'm saying the idea of translation There's something very interesting in that idea of right. translation. So when you
0: write in English, where is Tamil in that is, is the this question. Is, you know, what yeah. I was going to say is that right?
1: uh, yeah, this is, when you write in English, I think that's fantastic. And that's exactly where I wanted to go. Yeah. And But what I would also propose is that we think of it in terms of practice, mm. you know. Because this is, and you will, I suspect that pretty much every writer, every novelist, let's say for the moment, mm-hmm. um, pretty much every novelist or writer that you that you talk to, who who's who's confronted with the similar issue, which is that you know uh, they write in English or in any language, but about characters who. Uh, are speaking in some other language, I think they will tell you is that the process of writing and revision has some very specific steps to it, which is to... So the challenge for me, for example, and and this may not be true of all writers, I'll just speak for myself, the challenge for me is to write in English, which in some sense, let's say honors the feel and the sound of Tamil and the movement of thought in Tamil without either running the risk of two things, either becoming kind of just sort of standard English or becoming a kind of an exoticized sort of like speak, right? right. I mean, so right. so this is a very, and many people have talked about it, you know, the the great one of the great sort of Indian writers in English, Raja Rao, you know, wrote that famous Kanthapura, preface to Kantapura, which yeah. is actually at the beginning of a kind of a literary tradition in India—a kind of a statement of this problem. Right? So
0: before you translate these sentences, you have kind of translated the entire context and
1: I think this and that. I think the I think there the writers will give you different answers. So I'll hmm. tell you what I do. What I do is to you know write you know, and and try to, like, both imagine the Tamil, but not actually, like, as Sundar is saying, not necessarily translate. But often it's at the level of revision rather than the drafting. Like, when you go back and you look at the scene and then you want to try that. And this was something, by the way, to bring translation... But you don't
0: end up writing in Tamil and then no, translating definitely in reality. Not. Like the, no, not. No, not. Your working drafts are... From the word get-go in English.
1: Absolutely. I'm working in English from the get-go, but I'm also trying to not just produce American standard English or Indian standard English or like so that readers are m- made to access a sense of being a certain in a different... idiom
0: translates.
1: Right. Or yeah. like even just the experience, you know, and for me, the great models here are the African writers, right? Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart is often cited as a right. kind of a pioneering text in this way. And along with Raja Rao's Preface, you know, Kantapura. So, you know. Ustansir,
0: yeah. how is poetry different?
1: You're talking about uh, a novel which you are writing.
3: Uh, of course, when you do poetry, there is already a text. Yeah. So there is the source text and then there is the target text. Yes. So as far as... Let's far talk as, about
0: that literary translation. So from yeah.
3: language A to language B. Language A to language B. So then there are two types of ways in which you can do it. Mm-hmm. One is to almost do a word-by-word translation. Mm-hmm. And
0: is that even possible in poetry? And that's uh, that's
3: it, it has been attempted but it, it, it uh, risks Almost always fails. Some some serious, you know, being becoming very stilted. Mm-hmm. And then there is the sense for sense translation, which is what I try to do.
0: Concept to concept. Anyway. Uh,
3: not yeah, but sense, yeah, sense yeah, for, you know to, to kind of convey the sense of the source language into the target language, but at all times remembering that the target language is English. And it has to make perfect sense in English.
0: And what if those senses don't exist in the target language? Or don't Uh, exist with those same registers? Because
3: it is literary, because it is poetry, you have a little more leeway to kind of make the transition. Mm. If we were doing some sort of technical translation, then probably the problems which you talk about would emerge more acutely. But if it is poetry and you are translating poetry... From one target language, I mean, from the source language to the target language, there are several devices you can use to get the message across.
0: But you know, poetry, by its very nature, and it is many, many types of it, um, are somewhat more non-factual, non-instructional in the in the in their very nature. Um, I think both Sundar and Shankar mentioned that almost all translation is reinterpretation of some shape or form, would that hold in your context as well? In any case, it is it
3: reinterpretation to. because it is in a different language. Yeah. And a different... We should ask, why is one language different from the other? Yeah. And I think there are two or three things. One is cultural milieus make the language sometimes different from the other, at least in its historicity. Mm-hmm. Right. The second thing is the what is known as the parole. You mm-hmm. know, the way people speak a language is the sum total of the way all those people speak that language. And that becomes its own kind of sub-environment. But when you look at a different language, the same thing applies. But these two don't, you know, the the movement across languages is not that uh, equivalent. So I, I do have problems of equivalences between source languages and target languages. Yeah.
0: And mathematics is obviously very different, Sundar, from poetry. Mm, well, maybe not. Be. Is there such a thing as translating mathematics? Uh, yeah, so... Um, yeah. I, I Can you I'm translate I'm it into prose? Yeah, it has such okay. a symbolic structure and... Yeah. character from the looks of it.
2: Well, I think uh, one has to then now define translation a little more carefully here, right? Okay. And I think exactly is what both of them have said. Mm. Uh, to think that uh, mathematical expression can be translated, mm. uh, let's say if I have uh, E equal to MC squared mm. and then I want to translate it, uh, you know, it seems to be like a very different kind of a game, but perhaps it is not. And the difference in the case of mathematics arises not only because mathematics is a different language, but because the expression E equal to mc squared is first of all derived from or always referring to terms a natural in language. natural language. Yes. So it is like a reduced natural language first. Yes. And then... It
0: presupposes a natural language almost.
2: It presupposes a natural language. So I'd say, I know what E equal to MC squared saying e, Let E be energy is the first sentence. Yeah. Let M be mass. Let C be velocity of light. Then E equal to MC squared. Yes. So my translation is not happening at the level of symbols here. Yeah. It should happen at the upper level. At the level of definitions. Which at are the level of definitions, which is already natural language. Which are so there yeah. I can translate into Urdu or Tamil, those words. But you know, it's a very important problem actually in the whole history of scientific translations and this is something which we should really think about because when literature literary studies has put developed or translation studies has put in so much of effort in trying to ask how do I translate poem how do I translate a novel etc mm. the question of translation of scientific texts has never been a central concern for them mm. and you know nobody has asked <laughs> how come the most important text in the early 20th century in quantum theory relativity theory and mathematics came in it was written in German, German French and Russian yes and, you know, we think, oh, quantum theory, there's no problem about translation of quantum theory because you just write it in English. And the reason is because, the, and this is a very important problem about the question of translation, that's why I'm saying this. Mm-hmm. The reason is because I can always translate quantum theory or uh, theory of relativity into uh, from German to English. And those words in German are translated to English, but the equations remain the same, and the essence of so an idea. you don't idea,
0: have the equivalence problem there. No,
2: the, no. There is. It's actually mimicking, in a sense, right? The essence of an idea, the truth, if you like. And this is saying something very important about truth in language. Mm. Those words in German and for English and Urdu, etc., mm. are just carrying the burden of truth, Mm. which are present in equations and mathematics, Mm. and they by themselves don't contribute to truth. So it doesn't matter if I replace German with English, what's the big deal? As long as you don't change the equations. And that's why there's this whole suspicion of
0: language itself in science. But that that kind of presupposes, Sundar, that all the truth, as you call it, capital T truth... Is congealed in those equations and there's nothing in the discursive this, that around it. Correct. That's right. And that, uh, I mean, to really track that uh, point,
2: you have to go back to the longer history of science, particularly with Galileo, Mm -hmm. who makes this very important uh, move, Mm -hmm. which is to describe uh, the act of science as nothing but reading the open book of nature. Mm -hmm. So nature is an open book. In fact, therefore, that's why the question of translation and, uh, you know, reading science as reading texts are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. That's why to connect to what Shankar was saying, science is a form of storytelling of the world, except the novel about the world is already written in front of you yeah. and the, but but galileo puts a very important problem there he says it's written in, in mathematics language because mathematics. mathematics is language of nature Mm. and therefore it's not about human constructed truth reading what nature the truths written in nature are written in mathematics and therefore mathematics carries truth and that is also the reason why mathematics is untranslatable
0: but now we are flipping this right Sundar because just a little while ago we said that when we get to these mathematical equations kind of presupposes a natural language but whatever is there to be said or understood about nature if it is written in mathematics then the natural language has to follow that so Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean?
2: that's true what I'm saying is the first account which I told you is the way we can understand what does it's it how mean we to translate science, which yeah, is what from... is mathematics today mm. and the other point which I'm telling you is what historically this Galilean shift towards understanding towards naturalizing mathematics mm. which happens as a particular way of his uh, understanding of the world it's also related in a larger sense at least in the western tradition the platonic tradition that mathematics has a world independent of its own it exists independent of its own
0: yeah.
2: and that therefore mathematics is there's something mathem- pure about it. Yeah, there, there's something, it's about truth, it's a different world. It's very theological in that sense. Mm. Very interestingly, Chinese and Indian mathematics doesn't do it. But that is the point of difference. But I think, I would go back to looking at mathematics as language. And I would argue, as I've argued elsewhere in my writing, that mathematics is always a translation and a kind of a transliteration, a very complex forms of translation of natural languages. And that therefore, what is very important about a scientific text is the fact that every scientific text is different from poetry and uh, novel because it's written in multiple languages. One scientific book it's is... It's multisemiotic. Multisemiotic. Right. And therefore, the only way in which you can make sense of multisemiotic is by invoking an idea of translation. So, you, can, you don't read the world. A scientific text is a classic example of translating the world at every step.
3: If you stay within the language itself yeah. mm. and you look at mathematical equations in a sense it is heightened language or very compressed kind of language hmm. which makes it pretty close to poetry actually yeah. because poetry is also a kind of heightened language it's something
0: non redundant somewhat yeah. you know or, yeah. or,
3: or basically you take essences you know you 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 bring them to 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 almost a point or you attempt to bring them to a point and so do equations you know they take from the larger spread of words that make up the language And they bring it out right into that essence.
0: Yeah, no, fair enough. I think in a certain sense it does. But for example, if one needs to understand poetry of Iqbal or of Amir Khusro, it looks like you would like the reader to appreciate or understand some of the context of where it is coming from. Again, one can have a point of view on these things, but that's not really true if you need to understand Quantum mechanics, written in German, you just I, need to. I, I don't. You're,
3: you're, I mean, I, I don't know whether that's uh, entirely correct because hmm. if you look at, say, the book which uh, Stephen Hawking wrote, mm-hmm. in a sense, it is the explanation of these extremely complex or uh, you know uh, uh, compacted equations, putting it right back into the that's the, some the, kind the of literary exposition, word.
0: and words. Yes, of course, it's exposition. Yeah,
3: yeah, and and it is taking back you know from where it where it took. In the sense that it, 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 the equations came from the larger body of language, and these equations are now being explained back into that very language that it came from.
0: I think the question is that uh, if, 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 if nature is uh, written in the language of mathematics, and then something we human beings came up with something called natural language, and then something like mathematics followed, and it became highly symbolic. Is this a redundant middle layer? Like, can mathematics, with all its formulas and equations, be translated into prose? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah,
0: but as I said, I think
2: to uh, that that makes sense without if, losing
0: truth, of course.
2: Yeah, but I'm saying that makes see. For example, if you look at Newton's three laws, as written by Newton in his hmm. uh, Newton's Principia Mathematica, they are all written in prose form. His whole Newton's Principia Mathematica is a classic example of how science can be written in prose form but which has very deep scientific truths in it. Mm-hmm. You look at the Indian mathematics, Aryabhatiya, Aryabhati, Aryabhati, Aryabhatta. look at other forms of Indian mathematical writing. They're all prose texts. There are no, but you can find an equivalent to the symbolic writing. And those are not, tra- well, I would call, I have actually in, in my book, Translating the World, and that's my argument I've made, that these symbolization is one form of translating. Right. So I can take the word uh, mass, and let's say I translate as into Indian language, so let's say, or something it's not a substance but you know something like that but if I say I translate mass into M that is also a translation and that's why I would like to come back to the point you made about poetry very briefly it is I think very true that is an essential part of scientific imagination has been to look at certain forms of theory, scientific theories, as poetry. Poetry in the sense of aesthetic value to those expressions. Those expressions are judged entirely and purely on aesthetic form. A classic instance is the fact when theory of relativity was supposedly proved by Eddington and Eddington actually fudged results. In the sense, his results did not actually prove Einstein's theory. It it could have proved Newton's theory as well. And later on, the
0: 1919 experiment. 1919 experiment. Yeah, sure, sure. And
2: he is the one who sends this great telegram, which is, sure. <laughs> you know, Einstein now. And when people later asked him, how come your experimental proof does not exactly show Einstein's theory, although you have said theory is proved, he said, these experiments right. don't matter. No, he says they don't matter. <laughs> the theory is so beautiful that it has to be true. Yeah. Dirac mentions the same thing, the quantum theory. I mean, many of these scientists... Tend to invoke a particular form of, in a, some innate sense, and in, or or in a very naive sense, some notion of poetic beauty, if, as exactly matching with theoretical expressions okay. or the certain kinds yeah. of equations. I mean, if
1: I mean, I think we might actually go back in a in a way sense to a point of departure by bringing back this idea of translation of as interpretation. Mm-hmm. I think. I'm always struck by, because as I said, you know, I do teach this class on translation and comparatism on a fairly fairly regular basis mm-hmm. um, uh, at the University of Hawaii, where I teach, um, to graduate students, and I'm sort of always struck by how much work always remains to be done, because it seems to me, and Sundar and Mustansi were both talking about this as well, is that it seems to me a fairly important, but, but maybe even commonsensical idea to put out there and yet there is much work which needs to be done to kind of really make people take that seriously so to build on what so i think what you know maybe uh, i'm hearing sundar say is that we need to bring back this idea that mathematics is a kind of an interpretation of the natural world in its own symbolic language but if i could just maybe add a slight rift to it and this is not so much about mathematics but maybe bringing it back to you know, translation from one natural language into the other, like say from Tamil into English or from sure. Urdu into English. So it has always struck it seemed to me that on the one hand, these are two things that I that I hold to be kind of maybe uh, true about translation practice, and also uh, things to remind people of. One is that translation is interpretation, and the way I sort of you know analogize it is that you know if I translate into English, I'm engaging in an act of interpretation in the way in which I might write an essay about Chinua Achebe's novel, Things Fall Apart, right? Which is to say that even if it's an act of interpretation, it is still susceptible to certain inquiry into into whether my interpretation is good or not. So in other words, we do not, you know, this is often the challenge that I get is that if translation is interpretation, then anything goes. No, not anything doesn't go in the same way that my essay on things fall apart anything which i say about it wouldn't hold true because you know it would have to be based on what's the
0: the, what's the criteria of evaluation then
1: well it would have to be like this is a text you know a particular reading i would have to you know it it would be a different kind of a truth then but certainly i mean i would have to make an argument i would have to say that well you know the character does this and therefore i can interpret the novel in this way so that's a kind of a process of evidence mongering which is involved but here's the second portion which i think is also kind of really important which is that in the nat so so how is translating Alepaide from tamil into english different than my writing an essay about things fall apart and the difference is that for the for the audience for which i'm translating typically they are not able to judge my Adequacy of translation. So there is that's where the I think the real problem of translation arises, right? On the one hand, it's an act of interpretation, but the act of interpretation can only be judged the when, adequacy of that act. Act of when inter- you know
0: both when you know
1: both A and B. Both A and B, and in a right. way, if you know both A and B, you don't need the translation. Right. <laughs> so the putative audience for a translation, by definition, cannot judge the adequacy of my tra- of my interpretation. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas, like, my interpretation of things fall apart, which is written in English. An essay that I write about in English, read by an English speaking reader, can read the novel, can read the essay and say Shankar is full of it, he's completely wrong. Or it's a wonderful. But in in a certain sense,
0: that's not translation. That's some kind of interpretation. It is interpretation. That's not translation. I mean that is
1: interpretation. But what I'm saying is that the claim that translation is interpretation which I want to defend, I want to defend it by also recognizing that there is a particular nuance which doesn't exist in other forms of interpretation, which is that... I
0: I think Shankar, I think one gets the storytelling part of your argument, uh, but if one had to maybe go on the philosophical side a little bit, what is preserved in the act of translation? So, of course, it's too general a question, one gets it, but where Um, do you feel like you can take some leeway and you have some flexibility... And what are the, you obviously can't change the plot if you're con- translating fiction, right. Um So is is there a way of coming up with something to say that these are the domains when, where one feels like one can take some leeway, and these are the domains which are relatively think, more rigorous and strict?
1: Well, I think this is not a matter of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know what I would say is that you know all translations are interpretations, mm-hmm. and there are different kinds of interpretations. And what needs to be signaled to the reader is what is the specific context of this particular interpretation, right? So that, you know, what do you signal to the reader is why you're doing the inter- interpretation for what purpose, right? And and so that is the way in which the adequacy of the of the of the translative act can be conveyed to the reader. And there are various the various ways to, ways to do it. You know, sometimes people write prefaces, they have footnotes, or they have like different ways in which they add it in there, right? It is a certain kind of a fetishization of authenticity and faithfulness to original text, which insists that these extra textual elements are not relevant, right? So somehow the if you're translating a poem like Mustasir was talking about or like if you're translating a novel, that somehow that that autonomous text must do all this work on its own is itself, I think, a kind of a inadequate acknowledgement of the interpretive nature of translation. Fair enough. Yeah.
0: Do you feel the need of footnotes when oh, yeah. you translate poetry? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Because I I acknowledge right from
3: the beginning that the source language is not the same as the target language. So in order to make the transition several times, you have to uh, use devices like footnotes uh, so that you can explain uh, certain things which do not get across. The second thing which I do uh, occasionally, and this is basically done, you know, when I talked about how to how to convey sense to sense, mm-hmm. is to use certain phrases from the original language in English, mm-hmm. in the uh, transliterated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I, in, in Marathi, uh, I, I do that from time to time. And then that Marathi phrase is explained with a footnote. Mm-hmm. Many a times because there is no perfect equivalence. Mm-hmm. Many a time because there is a cultural notion to the original Marathi phrase, Mm -hmm. which doesn't come across simply by translating word for word. Mm -hmm. Um, So yes, so the the, the environment of the book of translation includes footnotes and sometimes an introduction as mm -hmm. well.
1: But I think, you know, what I'm also trying to really maybe have us think about is the question of trust. So if you look at Translation studies, if Mm -hmm. you you look at translation studies, you know, um, until quite recently, is that, you know, there was this very, I think, problematic idea of fidelity of translation, Right. right? And what I'm proposing that we think about is that because of the bifurcated nature of the audience of the translation, right, where by definition, the reader in English cannot read the original in Tamil. By definition, what I mean is that if there is a reader in English who can read the Tamil, then that person doesn't need my translated text, right? So my translation is intended for a reader who cannot read it in Tamil. Read the source
0: language. Yeah, Yeah. cannot
1: read the source language. What does that do? That imposes an expectation of trust, right? So Mustasir is translating from Urdu into English. I am sort of trusting him to give me a good translation because I can't go and read the Urdu myself. So That's fine. yeah. So but I think, but that raises moral and ethical issues, which become more clear to us when we look at say, legal documents, right? <laughs> so one of the one of the famous events in the history of the colonization of New Zealand is the Treaty of Waitangi, right, right? where the Maori. And the British understood, and I'm not going to say too much about this because I'm stepping outside my area of expertise, but I certainly know enough from, you know. They
0: had they had an agreement, but they disagreed on the interpretation. Oh, because they on.
1: understood the it nature of two different things. Two different things. <laughs> so the Maori were not, the Maori didn't realize, quote-unquote, that they were giving up their land, you know, so that the act of colonization of New Zealand <laughs> is actually founded. Now that, so you, I'm bringing that in because it immediately conveys to us the consequence of this bifurcated audience, right? Because you have a document which is produced in English, right, which governs a bilingual community at this point. You know, a community which speaks in English—not not that everybody's bilingual—but what I mean is that there, are, there are, there's a Maori sure, community, sure. there's an English comu- speaking community, and the consequences are very real. So it's the sort of the colonization of New Zealand, which is the result of it. And I think we can, at a at a less dramatic level come back, you know, even, is my translation of Alai Payu, they adequate? You know, in what sense? And how is that English language, you know, reader who can't read the Tamil to decide whether, you know, whether it's adequate or not, that's an element of trust which is involved. What I'm trying to do is to, like, get us to also think about the sort no, of no, the moral enough. and ethical the, the, complexity the ethical. Of, this, of this situation. I, this is so just, complex, right? Yeah, Sunder,
0: but, because when you look at Texts from several centuries ago, maybe millennia ago, separated by time, culture, all kinds of gaps and barriers. How is one even supposed to interpret that or translate that after? Because it it almost feels like one needs a series of translation to get Mm. from one time to another. You know what I mean? I think,
2: you know, um, one of the more useful ways perhaps to recapture the question of translation Mm -hmm. is to forget the different language problem. Okay. It's not, I mean, that seems to be obviously clear. There's a very clear set of problems when you go from two different languages. Sure. But actually, you should be asking this question about the same language. Right. Because every act, like Jacobson's famous distinction. Language is not static. Not only language, even synonyms is a form of translation. Yes. You are rewriting it in some other expression. Yeah. You know, the fact that we believe that something called English exists. And something called Tamil exists Is based on a fact that English and Tamil Seem to have been two languages Which have stayed on across centuries But we know very well (laughs) That the words in English we use today Did not have the meaning that English had Maybe a hundred years back Yeah so and that's true for every language. Yeah. So the Alai Payu So we we'll have to keep on saying 1800 Tamar is different from 2000 Tamil, and therefore they translate. You know all these questions about what are you translating?
0: So in a way, that's the old English, new English thing. All right? that, and and, and so, I'm saying
2: yeah. that means, and then you break it up from old English to new English. You can break it up into English in uh, you know England yeah. versus Tamil Nadu versus Karnataka You know at all different levels, English yeah. spoken by some group of people, Urdu spoken in as uh, Dacni in. Uh, you know, Karnataka versus in Bombay, etc, etc. So, so, it's so, rather to go back, to recover question questions, to go back to the question of what is this about language?
0: Mm.
2: And the the argument which I think is something which I feel very comfortable with is that the definition of language mm-hmm. at its core has translation as its essence. And You're saying
0: it's prior to the notion translation of Translation is prior to language.
2: It the, A language is a language if it can be translated. But are we... Are we it presupposes uh, are we, translatability. It presupposes translation. I mean, there's just... Some- are we are we
3: mixing up translation and uh-huh. communication here?
2: No. What do we mean? Therefore, if you look at translation, therefore... So, we have to keep coming back to the question of what exactly then do we mean by translation? So, suppose you give up on equivalence question, as both of you said. Then... We don't know what, so it, it enters into this domain of interpretation, which is perfectly fine, which I think all language sure. is about interpretation and meaning. In which case, there is really nothing to characterize translation. Suppose I give up, I take a poem, a Urdu poem, and write a prose in English. And if you give up on uh, some certain quotes, there's nothing which stops me from saying, this is a legitimate translation of that. If we allow that, then the question is, what exactly does translation mean? Why isn't, uh, for example, commentaries... Yeah, and it goes back to what you are saying about ancient texts. So, in for example, in Indian philosophy, you had the basic main texts, and then commentaries of these texts, right? And commentaries have to be viewed as translations because it takes two sentences of a sutra, and you will write 20 pages of it. <laughs> and the 20 pages of it, we'll have to say, why is that not translated? In fact, it it follows the best example of faithful equivalence. Right, right. It so, in fact opens uh, up the equivalence. Yeah. So,
1: Sundar I would, I, you know, I completely agree with you. You, even though it might be sort of backtracking a little bit but I would say that I would I completely agree with you and that translation is is a foundational problem of pro- problem of, of language um, as such I, I like the way you put it. The only maybe refinement I would add is that there's a kind of a stabilization of that problem if you want to put it that mm. way by the historical constitution of interpretive communities because I think and that is the way that I would put it is that in 2017, Translating Alai Paideh from Tamil into English and writing an interpretive essay about Chinua Achibe's essay, Things Fall Apart, Apart, in English, are differently constituted and and one can practice them differently because the interpretive communities which have been, you know, formed in history are different so in other words you know i'm agreeing with you but i'm also proposing that we do not kind of at the level of abstraction get rid of these differences correct i
3: agree with you yeah as they say a text perhaps should be translated every 30 years (laughs) yeah you know to to keep a certain no. But trajectory i think taking up Sundar's
0: point a little bit so if you're translating an urdu poem why don't you translate it into english prose you know what i mean Like, what is it about its form that you feel? Yeah, I I think. uh, Sure. I can respond to that
3: uh, very clearly. Hmm. It's because I look at the end product of what I am doing as creating English poetry. So, what I want at the end is poetry that can be read in English
2: as poetry. As poetry. But then that's the point I'm saying. If poetry itself is a translatable term into English, which means new forms of poetry. So, you, now you read these prose poetries yes. or shopping list poetries. In principle, one could say... So, I, granting that it can be poetry, somebody might say prose is a form of poetry today or a new genre of poetry. But there is prose poetry. So, what... So and I think that's the, what you're highlighting I think the point is the change, constant changing meaning of terms and concepts allow us to really relocate the question of translation within the forces of one language itself and I think that's starting right. point which then goes on into other languages that's mm-hmm. I think one useful way at least for me to make sense But you know okay. I
3: can I can give you a very interesting reverse of this as well Right and that is that uh, in in the in the mid 80s mm-hmm. Uh, My father Mm -hmm. translated the Quran Mm -hmm. from the Arabic to Marathi, in verse. Mm -hmm. And the form which he used was the one used by the Marathi saint poets, which is called an Ovi. Ovi. Yeah, or from the Abhanga format. Sure. Okay. Now, there is no connection at all between the original... Arabic.
0: So this is a kind uh, of translation come adaptation
3: Of course, it is a yeah. translation come adaptation but there is no... I mean, there is the fidelity to the meaning. Right. Only it is presented here in the form of a local cultural idiom in terms of the form, the structure. But the meaning is conveyed nevertheless. Yeah. So a, a prose book like the Quran yeah. is now conveyed in the form of... Mm-hmm. A poetic text,
1: mm-hmm.
3: okay, in a language where that form mm-hmm. is already part of the consciousness.
2: Right. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. Yeah. How was it received? It hasn't been circulated
3: much. Okay. Uh, so I, I can't uh, really tell you okay. with any great
1: precision. But it was a great effort of love yeah, and exactly. it took a very, very no. long well, time. I mean, I think what that also <laughs> illustrates is the... Is is the kind of and here again I think this is more evidence for translation as interpretation as I would say is that is whether you translate the text or the function of the text right That's and so right. many many translation theorists have talked about this you know including anthropological sort of scholars interested in translation is that is that the desire to kind of this fidelity to the text can often end up mistranslating the function of the text, right? So if you're translating the function of a text, of text which functions as a poetic text in the source language, what you should really translate is that function in the target language rather than as some kind of like literal fidelity. But I think the thing which I will come back to, and, and this is sort of, again, connected to really broad ethical and political issues is that one of the work that I feel like I, I want to do through my teaching and my writing and so on and so forth is sort of the kind of a spreading of a certain, what I would call a culture of translation is the phrase that I use, which is a fairly sophisticated but popular understanding of what translation is and the kind of role that translation plays. Because without that understanding, we have things like the Treaty of Waitangi being understood in different ways. I mean, in other words, there are sort of political, moral, civilizational consequences because translation is re- asked, is required to do work that it cannot do. And we shouldn't be expected to do, right? They We could convey a certain kind of truth in this particular way, which is incapable of conveying. So in
0: that general sense, Shankar, we're translating all the time anyway,
1: mm-hmm. aren't we? We are translating all the time anyway, so you're going to see me do a little bit of a dance because, you know, I'm always trying to strike this balance between this recognizing the extraordinary, you know, philosophically complicated issues in translation, uh, which we access only at the level of abstraction, and also resisting the desire to turn everything into translation because then I feel as if translation as an object of study is lost to me. So I'm always going to be, when you ask me a question like that, I'm always going to strike the balance between saying, yes sure. there are elements with what you say and there you know there there are, there are there are like lessons about the very nature of language to go back to what sundar was saying that we can learn but at the same time i'm going to resist saying everything is translation because then I don't have an object of study left. And I don't mean that in a sentimental way, but I also mean that in the sense of a historically specifiable way.
0: Which means that I mean you, you do think that there's such a thing as bad translation and wrong translation. In the, same, the absolutely. I think kind of there are context. bad. I think,
1: you know, I think we have to acknowledge that in the way where there are bad interpretations and good interpretations, right? A student of mine writes a dissertation, you know, I can say like, you know, this chapter needs to be rewritten because actually the claims you're making do not hold up you know based on the evidence and the arguments that you're marshalling i think similar kinds of arguments can be made about translation the difference as i said is that the audience for which you're doing it by definition is incapable of going back and engaging in that because of the constitution of the interpretive community historically is incapable of going and testing it itself so that's where the trust comes in right it must rely on it must rely it must either trust the translator or it must rely on a third or a a person to actually authenticate it right you know and and sort of say which is again the reason if you think about it why many famous translations in history have often had a preface by some authoritative figure right to say you know i you know you know it's because of that bifurcated nature of the audience and
0: i i know you made this point about the reader not knowing the source language, but somebody like somebody like you, Mustansir, who's a translator, you obviously know Urdu and English, and you know Marathi and English. So both these texts, when put side to side, do they supplement each other in some way, or you kind of look at them as somewhat independent? Again, very general, but you That's know what an, I mean. Because you, it's an
3: interesting question, um, uh, and it is all related to uh, asking who is it that you're translating for? So, if I can give you an example, when I translated Iqbal, Mm -hmm. uh, his two long poems, Shikwa and Jawabi Shikwa, Mm -hmm. and it was published, I published it with a Roman transliteration. Mm -hmm. So, on one side, you have the Roman transliteration and the other side, the English translation. Roman Mm -hmm. is also English, but transliteration and English. Now, uh, what made me do that? And I, I did the entire transliteration as well. So it is written in a non-phonetic, you know, with all those diacritical sure. things just as mm-hmm. uh, some th- something that somebody can easily read. It's because I acknowledge the fact that my end reader, to a large extent, mm-hmm. is multilingual, mm-hmm. very likely knows Hindi. Mm-hmm. Okay. But certain uh, words of Urdu may be a little mm-hmm. uh, unfamiliar. Okay. And is going to enjoy reading the transliteration with uh, as much delight as the translation. So it gives the opportunity for my reader to read Iqbal's words mm-hmm. as he wrote them in transliteration, and then the translation on the side. Mm-hmm. So I that this acknowledgement is also uh, inherent in my mind while I'm doing. The translations.
0: And is that is that serving a largely aesthetic purpose there? Or there's something more than uh, that at work?
3: Not necessarily. Like say when Iqbal is writing these two poems, he's conveying a great spirit of anger. Okay, there is an angst within him. He is, he is kind of berating Allah for the state of the Muslim community in India in the turn of the century. Okay, mm-hmm. so that, that sense, that spirit is conveyed best when you read his words in Urdu. And you have people who can understand that because they are multilingual people. Okay. So you can enjoy the Urdu as well. That is what I'm trying to say. You get it both ways.
1: Yeah. yeah. So if I can, you know, maybe just use mustazi with the, the example that you're using, just you know, something which is a lot of like literary translators are very familiar with is this difference between foreignizing translation and domesticating translation, right? I mean, the domesticating translation is like putting it into the target language idiom so much that, you know, it sounds like, and I've always felt as somebody who's translated myself and who teaches translation theories that I'm not, I think it's, My answer is sometimes domesticating translation is is good, and sometimes foreignizing translation is good. It depends on what function you want it to serve. And the important thing is that the reader not... The problem is at the level of reception, right? Where we have, you know, and I suspect it's true in India as well, but it certainly is true in the United States where I work mostly, um, is that the readers have an expectation of fidelity and authenticity, and that's where the problem arises. It's like I'm reading Dostoevsky (laughs) Whiskey in English, but... I want everything that the Russian reader is going to get. And I think we need to disabuse readers of that expectation.
3: May I ask you a question?
1: (laughs)
0: Yeah.
3: May I ask you a question? That would it be fair to say that when I am doing the translation, or forget the translation, when I am reading a translation, Mm -hmm. the translator becomes invisible. In the sense that when I am reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez Mm -hmm. in English, Mm I am reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I am not
1: ideally the I'm not reading Rabasa. Mhm. Um, I would actually maybe not be so much in favor of making the translator invisible, Mm -hmm. right? And here again, I want to get out of a binaristic way of making the point, because the opposite of invisibility is not dominance over the source text, right? I mean, so that's the way it's put. The translator, if somebody says, no, the translator should not be invisible, then okay, you know, Garcia Marquez is going into the shadow of like Rabasa. What I'm proposing is that there are ways of... And these are institutional and practical issues. Institutional in the sense that who's publishing, in what spirit, in what kind of edition, with what kind of paraphernalia around it, right? So I would say that it's possible both to recognize Garcia Marquez as the great literary genius he is, and keep Rabasa from becoming invisible, for better and for worse, so that we can judge his, judge his act of translation in whatever way. But then that is typically
3: know. when you know both languages.
1: That is when you know both languages. But what I'm saying is that the reception of Garcia Marquez should not endeavor, the reception in English, should not endeavor to re- make Rabasa invisible. Because it is to then allow translation. It's part of that culture of misunderstanding translation. So what I would say is that Rabasa doesn't need to become invisible, but Garcia Marquez's literary genius doesn't need to be go un- Unacknowledged well, I would it's say Rabasa false... needs
3: to be recognized, mm-hmm. but while I'm reading a long novel, mm-hmm. uh, I, I I should get the uh, sense that I'm reading Garcia Marquez. True. Because it's sometimes when you read bad translations, right? That is when you feel the translator is making his presence felt the most.
1: Mm, maybe, but more than I think though, those we can get into these questions of like you know <laughs> the adequacy. But I think more than that is that. Is is the is where the translator's name is really small, and if you go and look at some like Russian novels, I certainly you know grew up reading many of these Russian novels when I was a student. You in don't know translated. Them? A, the translator's name will not even be there. It might be on the copyright page and really small. And I think nothing is gained by that, because. Uh, because there is bad faith in making translation invisible, is what I'm saying. Because okay. what I needed to know as like a 16-year-old reader of like Tostoyevsky in Chennai is that, yes, Dostoyevsky is a great Russian writer. Yes, you're reading a translation. But look, Shankar, all you're reading is hopefully, which you will not be able to judge because you don't know Russian, a damn good interpretation of 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 this russian novel you know i'm not sure that i would have lost anything as a reader and i think i would have gained a lot that's what i'm that's that's the change i'm proposing that we need to but, have but at the can this be transcript. discernible in the text itself i think it can be discernible in the text it gets more complicated and here is where i would say that we would need to judge it as we would any interpretive act. So if I read Raja Rao's Kantapura and I write like a essay on it and it's published in a journal, readers will say this is actually makes sense or doesn't make sense. You know, in the same way, I think it can be judged, right? Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Are there languages which are intrinsically difficult to translate from?
2: Um, well, I, I, Well, I'm... Not the best person perhaps to answer this but I'm going to use that question to connect back to what you are saying because mm. I think that is the more yeah. foundation step because the point you suggested and I think which he also picked up was that you need to have a, for translation to be meaning you know there's a destruction about translation itself but it makes meaning only if you do not know both the languages and the moment you know both the languages there is already a kind of a problem with the very idea of translation mm-hmm. Um but what I want to suggest is that also what Shankar was saying earlier about the politics of translation is actually about the fact that you know both the languages, you're proficient in both the languages, and that does not stop the problem of translation because then the question is what should I, whether you allow a particular translation or not. And the reason I'm saying this is this, that for a very long time, it went back to the question you asked earlier about translating ancient texts. Yeah. You know, there's this great resistance to translating, let's say, certain uh, terms within Indian philosophy into English language terms. So even a simple thing like logic. So there is a long tradition in Indian philosophy about using the word Anumana, which is about study of inference, and that is logic. Right. Now, people some many people have actually get really upset about it and say, oh, how can you say logic is Anumana? You can translate, you know, I mean, there are very good answers to this, etc, etc. But the point is, to me, this shows a fundamental problem of translation, whether we know two languages or not, which is that we look at translation as a form of judgment. For me, the real important idea of translation is not a form of judgment. And that's why when you say you want to evoke that same poetic thing, that's not a form of judgment, that's a form of experience. And a f- translation is a form of experience is very different from form of judgment. So I'm saying this, I'm negating this whole question of difficult or easy languages because it's no longer a question of a form of judgment. That is, mm-hmm. judgments have certain forms. Rather, to me, translation is a form of new knowledge making, new meaning making. And that's why it goes back to the original idea of translation. The origin of the word translation is from metaphor. Uh, they have they they very strong correlates, right. and it is, opens up new ways of looking at the world, which sticking to that language doesn't do. That's why I'm saying translation is the essence of language prior to language, because the opening up of meaning of the world through language is not possible because we are stuck to these words, which seem to constrain certain kinds of meanings. Something translation is gained releases in the process. it. Huh? Something is gained in the process, and even e- the words. Exactly, with, right? and there the ga- its always ampliative. It opens up more and therefore these questions of equivalence really misses uh, and therefore as a form of judgment, even outside Mm. equivalence. always judging to see something or the other. If we remove translation from that trajectory and open it up as a form of new knowledge making really as a form of you know creating if you don't want knowledge that's got more meaning making then it uh, you know makes us look at these questions between
1: languages same mm-hmm. languages in a different manner totally i think you know i mean if i can just jump in here um i think that's 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 really quite well put and i think But this, are there translations that should be resisted? I think there are translations that should be resisted so i was again often you know i was going to agree with sundar and then just sort of remind us of like the other kinds of uses of translation, which is of course translation and you know, and, and I think some really excellent work was done maybe 20-25 years ago mm-hmm. and, and though the tide in sort of post-colonial studies has kind of moved in a different direction, but certainly mm-hmm. was the relationship between colonialism and translation. So, you know Eric Chaffetz has this great book on sort of the colonization of North America right. which is called The Poetics of Imperialism, mm-hmm. which I think is a wonderful kind of like early you know text on this where, where he points out that the translation was one of the processes by which north america was was you know colonized by i mean a very simple example would be the renaming of places you know that's the most obvious and simple one like you know you know native names are erased and it becomes new york i mean manhattan of course is a native name but you know it becomes new york it becomes boston so it's the
0: target language which is powerful
1: in this case um the target language, yeah. It,
0: or it assimilates. It
1: assimilates. It just overwrites. And, yeah. you know, it's sort of a form of... And then he takes it through and he looks at many other things, including sort of, you know, sort of documents this and... This is CT. Eric Schaffetz, right? You're Eric Schaafetz. Yeah, hmm. it's Eric Schaffetz, So he does, he does that. So, so I think... But I think... This is not to in any way, but not all translation is violence, right? It's not, so there's not. I think one needs to be what a little Sundar careful. Again. In yeah. fact, the thrust of my own work has been to kind of like really kind of do what Sundar is, is doing is to sort of think about translation in more like positive ways. I just want to do that work without forgetting the historical fact that certain kinds of translation have done this other more, more violent work, and so in that sense, translation is, and this is again to build on what Sundar is saying, is that translation is like any language act. It is capable of violence or not, you know? I mean, it's it's not it's not any different than that, but it's not to make it either one, either violence or non-violence, constitutive sure. of translation. It's, you know, it's... But it's, at any moment in time in history, yeah. uh,
0: translation into, like, for example, at this point in time, presumably translation into English is the larger domain, wouldn't you totally. agree? I mean, are there lots of...
3: uh, It doesn't normally work in the other direction. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, are there English poetry is getting translated into Urdu with Uh,
3: into Marathi? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, what's the future? Why don't you spend the last five minutes thinking about this? As you look forward five hundred years, what's problematic? What could happen? What might be different?
1: Well, in one sense the future of translation. Everything trans- could get
0: translated into
1: English right. and everything yeah. else could vanish. Yeah. That's that's
0: that's one in way. In one to-
1: sense the future of translation is its past, because if as we all three of us have really been saying, translation is somehow like sort of, you know, coeval with the very sort of language itself, then right. as long as language there's gonna be the question of translation. Some of the things that we haven't talked about is mm-hmm. of course very interesting sort of developments. And, you know, and I'm still not sure what I think about it, like Google Translate and machine translation and so on and so forth. At a certain core, like sort of philosophical level, I think what we're talking about are not going to go away just because there's machine translation and Google translation. But there are new instantiations of this or the use of like... Translators by the U.S. Army in Iraq. You know, one hears you know like sort of the sort of the pioneering of like translation devices because before you shoot somebody, you should tell them like I'm going to shoot you. You know, <laughs> in, in their language, in the local language, before you the language. Shot. You know, whether it's in Kashmir or like wherever. You know, <laughs> in Sri Lanka or in Iraq. You know, just gonna spread the blame or the or the you know but whatever what, around. What, what, you know, what's
0: your hunch on this, uh, Shankar? Can can all translation be automated can 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 some of you be made redundant in the super long run i think
1: not because and here's where the the again not the visual side in you of course yeah no i don't think i don't think it can because i think what we are saying if i can sort of summarize it is that the context of translation is important that translation is always an interpretive act and even the machine translation is going to work with a database which is input by human beings Right. right so in that sense there is already a kind of like a it, so just because the, the machine is, is doing, yeah, just yeah. because the machine is doing it, or because Google Translate is doing it, doesn't mean that the act of interpretation stops being an act of interpretation. That's that's really what I'm saying. And to me, I, I, this is a very grandiose claim, and so it'll be very hard for me to kind of <laughs> instantiate it. But I think we become different kinds of ethical beings when we recognize that translation is an interpretive act because we become less demanding of the world to like provide us with certain truths. Do you right. see what I'm saying? It's, yes. it, it teaches you a certain humility. So, so that would be the future of translation that and I would like all, to wish for, you know.
0: And it's somewhat provisional all the time. Provisional,
1: exactly, yeah.
0: What's the future, Sundar? It looks like you know yeah. the answer. I know the answer and I'm going <laughs> to predict it. Yes, you know? go ahead. And
2: if we look at translation in terms of language and you know moving from language to other, yeah. the future of translation is dead. There is going to be no question of translation because there's a very important shift happening in the very idea of language in today's world. Mm -hmm. You have SMS language, Mm -hmm. Twitter language, Mm -hmm. you know, these kinds of modifications of language have gone to the extent that the real question of translation is not going to be about language at all. And given our kind of technology use, in which are you
0: saying language is going to be dead as we currently understand language
2: it? Language, as we understand it, with all its problems of grammar, aesthetic, and... meaning, etc., are going to get completely transformed into visual images of various kinds. Already today, whether it's with our students, I mean, this sounds like a very negative view, but I, you know, as I said, it's a prediction, and yeah. hopefully, it will not happen. But it is going to happen. Yeah. Is that you know people have lost the capacity to be able to engage with what you? You know like these two people have been doing with their own you know literary text it's not going to happen other than a small community of you know scholars and <laughs> professors and stuff it's not going to happen in the public domain where that kind of illiteracy about language doesn't mean it's not a negative thing because it's going to get replaced look at computer but language it's going to look be a higher
0: fidelity world then in the sense huh? that there's less translation loss right i mean for example it's like looking at a Watching a film in Spanish with dubbing. I mean, yeah, but it, you could look at it as a higher
2: fidelity or a complete openness to all kinds of possibilities. Mm. Today, the way of engagement through technology. I mean, I'm really placing this question of technology. Mm. While Shankar raised this point. Maybe one is machine translation question. Sure. But if I, I mean, leave that aside. I'm saying just the idea of technology in today's world, the prediction of it, where it's leading us to, is it's going to make the idea of translation redundant because it's going to at the heart of what constitutes language is really at the that's at the you know that's the core problem right now you're going to replace that with the kinds of the worlds which you create in your computers the digital virtual worlds which have completely replaced many fundamental questions about language remember that why I'm saying this and I'll stop here yeah The real question about language, right from its origins, has been the capacity of language to represent the world. To represent, to have a claim towards reality of some kind. The world word, fit and all of that. Yes. And some some claim is always... That's why the question of translation and fidelity is about... In English, it represents the world in a particular way. I want it to represent the same way in Urdu. That's where the question of fidelity is coming from, from the idea of language. Now, in this digital world, in the kinds of alternate spaces in which we all inhabit within the machines, there is no... Language world connection. Language is no longer referring or making a claim to reality of worlds. And when that happens, there is nothing to do, you know, it changes the fundamental idea of what language is and therefore of makes
0: translation as an idea very redundant. I mean, but somewhere down the line, I mean, these are not just copies and copies of copies, right? I mean, yeah. wouldn't it refer to some kind of reality? At the end of it all, but not
2: at the kind of I mean the kind of the multiple levels of reality we are engaging with in our smartphones even today. Forget about ten years from now, and look at the children who are looking at these phones from morning till evening and the world that they create around themselves. It's you. Language cannot do the function that it has been traditionally been doing. So it has to reinvent itself. Language has to reinvent itself, and And that's what's going to happen.
0: uh, Take that just a step further, you're saying that in a world of that nature, should it happen, certain kinds of meanings would be lost. No, I would say
2: it. there's a proliferation in fact in such a kind of a world mm-hmm. what you will have is that ultimately, finally and thankfully the recognition that all that, that is there is translation and languages come after. <laughs> they are more irrelevant than translation. So in a sense translation is not going to be translation yeah, studies is going to die sex, yeah. but translation as an idea will have will have to be the only way we make sense of that kind of a world.
0: Yes, Mustan sir. What's the world? Uh, well, um, in, in a positive
3: sense, I think that every translation is an extension. So when we when a translation comes it extends both languages and you know enriches both languages. That has always been the case and I do see that continuing. But uh, if I take up your argument about uh, you know the world which is becoming increasingly virtual and so on, I think at one point in time then there will have to be the earlier fallback and that is of language as the spoken language as an auditory kind of entity where language will remain even if the written language kind of merges into this uh, you know the 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 visual and the the written kind of thing but the spoken language will always be an evolving language based on the continual agreement of everybody who is speaking that language. So the language will keep changing within itself. But I'm a little... uh, I I don't know whether I would agree that, say, you know, all languages would tend to merge into some sort of common Pangea language uh, sort of thing. I don't think that will happen. Uh, We will keep having uh, nuances and dictions and pigeons and different types of, you know, pure pure languages and Garbled languages and so on. And the need for translation, therefore, will continue to remain.
0: Yeah, terrific. I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank, thank, you. You. thank, Take thank, you. Care. thank you. Thank you. Thank you.